Some of you may have read some of A.W. Pink's works. He was considered to be one of the most influential writers in the last half of the 20th century. His writings were influential in the last half of the 20th century, but he died before the last half of the 20th century, so it wasn't until after his death that we as evangelicals came to appreciate and understand many of the things he wrote about. A.W. Pink used an analogy that helps us understand the great and complex and even difficult truths that we'll be looking at today from God's Word. And it's an architectural metaphor, so you can see why I relate with it. But Pink wrote, When a building is in the course of construction, onlookers are often at a loss to perceive the reason for many of its details. As yet, they discern no order or design. Everything appears to be in confusion. But if they carefully scan the builder's plan and visualize the finished production, much that had puzzled them would become clear to them. It is the same with the outworking of God's eternal purpose. Unless we are acquainted with his eternal decrees, history remains an insoluble enigma. God is not working at random. The gospel has been set forth on no uncertain mission. The final outcome in the conflict between good and evil has not been left indeterminate. This morning we're going to be looking at the divine architect's plan, as it were, God's plan that was drawn up before the foundation of the world. Now just looking at a very complex and thick set of blueprints, if they were laid out before this, you know, many of the details of God's plan are enigmatic, they're puzzling, they're perplexing, as I mentioned there's going to be some we won't understand this side of heaven. And they're identified on the plans with descriptions like election. Go explain that one to somebody. Predestination, foreknowledge, justification, sanctification, glorification. And much like looking at a set of blueprints, even though it does take time, it takes effort and training to understand the fine details of the blueprints and and understand what the building is going to be like, we can understand what God's building is going to be like, and we can even understand many of the fine details, if not all. God has given us the plan. He has given us his word, the scripture. And even though we may not understand some of the why of the plan, or even some of the how, why the divine architect designed things a certain way, yet the plan itself becomes clear. But in order for it to become clear, we have to begin looking at the right place in the plan. We have to begin at the right place. And that right place is with the doctrine of election. Now, I'm not talking about how we choose elected officials. I'm talking about God choosing us. For in Ephesians chapter 1, we read in verse 4 that God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. That was God's plan. That's when God began to implement his plan, at least as it related to us, and how we fit into God's plan. Because the doctrine of election is foundational. Election takes us back to the beginning of all things. Election comes before the foundation of the world. Election comes before sin came into the world. Election comes before the fall of men. Election comes before the advent of Jesus Christ. Election comes before his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. Election comes before the proclamation of the gospel. And speaking of election and its importance, A.W. Pink wrote, a right understanding of it, that is, a right understanding of election, 
especially in its relation to the everlasting covenant, is absolutely essential if we are to be preserved from fundamental error. If the foundation itself be faulty, then the building erected on it cannot be sound. And if we err in our conceptions of this basic truth, then just in proportion as we do, will our grasp of all other truth be inaccurate. God's dealings with Jew and Gentile, his object in sending his son into this world, his design by the gospel, yea, the whole of his providential dealings cannot be seen in the proper perspective until they are viewed in the light of his eternal election. What A.W. Pink is telling us, and rightly so, is that in studying God's plan, we have to begin at the right place. Because if we have misconceptions of what it means to be chosen by God, we will necessarily have misconceptions on what it means to be foreknown, what it means to be predestined, what it means to be called, justified, and glorified. So please turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the third verse of the first chapter. And verses 3 through 6, in most translations, is one long sentence. So I'm going to read all four verses again, verses 3 through 6. Now in the Greek, verses 1 through 14 are one long sentence. And uh, just imagine Bill Slabaugh sitting in seminary class in Greek and sentence diagramming the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. They're all one, one sentence. There's only one verb in, in the first 14 verses. But in the English translations, they make it clear for us. So, so verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us, the beloved. The Greek word here translated chose or to choose is the Greek word eklego. It comes from two Greek words, ek, which means from or out of. E-K means ek, from or out of. And lego, just like in the little toy, lego, which means to speak or to call out. The word eklego means to select or to choose by calling out something. When I was a kid, every recess we'd go out into the ball field at Butteview Elementary and the guys would split up into two teams. And two A-personality dominant types, you know the guys, we're going to be captains, you know. And so the captains would stand on one side and all of us other guys would stand on the other. And they would take turns choosing their own team. They would stand opposite the line of potential players and they would choose upside and they would call out names. That's what eklego means, to call out from. I choose Bill. If I was lucky enough to get chosen, usually I was the very last because I was only about that tall in the fifth grade. But anyway, but it was always cool to be chosen. Eklego means to call out from, to call out from. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, we go back to Romans chapter 8 for a minute. Romans chapter 8, verse 33, it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Elect, related to the same word, eklego, here it is eklektos, in the Greek, the elect, meaning the called out ones, 
the chosen of ones by God, picked by God. I thought it was interesting between the services today, I heard Steve point at somebody and say something like, you, and you, and the two oldest Durr boys. <laughs> they were called out. Why? To take the offering, to serve. That's exactly what it means. I'm calling you out from all the other people. This is really cool. There's, there's an illustration right there. Now, there's a related Greek word translated church. It's the ekklesia. It means to call an assembly together. The word was used in ancient Greece to call an assembly of public citizens. So as the church, we are the elect. We are the called out ones. We are the assembly of Jesus Christ. We are the elected ones, literally. Now, here's where it starts to get good as we start looking at the details of God's, God's plan. And as we are called out, turn to John's gospel, John chapter 6, 6th chapter of John, the 44th verse. John chapter 6, the 44th verse. And in John chapter 6, the Jews are grumbling at Jesus, Gigosmos, remember that word? Because he said he was the bread who came down out of heaven. Now, that, that's quite a claim. And so they're grumbling at this, and he tells them why in verse 44 of John chapter 6. He says, or verse 44, excuse me, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Christ unless the Father does a work, and here it's called the Father initiates the drawing of the person who comes to Jesus. And Jesus' words give us insight here what it means to be chosen by God, to be the elect, and how we are chosen. The word translated draws, unless the Father draws him, carries the idea of an irresistible force, a force that cannot be resisted. And it was used in the ancient Greek language of a desperately hungry man being drawn to food. In fact, literally, the word means to drag. Unless the father drags him, it was used to Paul when the mob beat him up and dragged him out of the temple. That's what, it's an irresistible force. You know, in salvage yards, they use giant electromagnets to lift and partially sort the scrap metal. Have you ever seen that? This big magnet comes over, and when the magnet is turned on, a powerful magnetic force draws all the ferrous material all the iron-based material that's near it, but it has no effect on other metals such as aluminum and brass. And so that's how they sort it. In a similar way, God's election, his calling, his drawing, irresistibly draws to himself those whom he has predetermined to love and forgive, while having no effect on those whom he has not. And, of course, that, that's bothersome to a lot of people. That God's choosing would have, or God's drawing or choosing would have no effect on those he didn't, didn't choose. That it has no effect on those who are not being drawn by the Father. And those who are bothered by this start talking about man's ability and man's free will to choose. And they, they want man to have something to do with this whole process. Now, we do know that man does have a will. 
but it's not as free as many people suppose. God gave man the ability to choose. We are created in God's image with a will, the ability to choose. But apart from God, man's will is captive to sin. It's perverted. And so man makes wrong choices with his will. But nevertheless, and here's the good news, he is able to choose God, and he's able to choose God because God made that choice possible. God made the choice to receive Jesus Christ possible. John wrote that whosoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes, will not perish but have what? Everlasting life. And Jesus said, everyone who lives in me and believes in me shall never die. The frequent commands to the unsaved to respond to the Lord clearly indicate the responsibility of man to exercise his own will. Yet the Bible is just as clear that no person receives Jesus Christ as Savior who has not been chosen by God. And we see this truth in John chapter 6, verse 37, if you're still in that 6th chapter. 6th chapter, John, in the 37th verse, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. From God's point of view, he chose us before the foundation of the world, and the Father gives us to the Son. From man's point of view, we respond to God's call, irresistibly drawn, to come to Christ, and Jesus doesn't turn anybody away. Nobody away. The Greek is emphatic. No, not ever, ever will cast out. Romans 10, 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever will call upon him. Now, if you're confused, good, because this is incomprehensible to our human minds. There's no way for us as finite creatures to know how all of this works. There is this interplay between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Jesus said that only those given by the Father will come to him, yet all who are thirsty may come, and anyone who wishes may take of the water of life without cost. And to us, the two truths seem to be in conflict. But in the mind of God, there's no conflict here. The two great truths are in perfect harmony with God's great plan. But the foundational truth is that God chose us before the foundation of the world. So in looking at God's plan, we've gone back to the beginning, before the foundation of the world. But Ephesians chapter 1 also takes us to the end. And we ask, for what purpose did God choose us? For what purpose? Why are we the elect of God? Let's go back to Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 again. And here we see the purpose. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, or so that, and in Greek studies, we call this a purpose clause. We could say, for this reason. What is the reason that Jesus or that God chose us before the foundation of the world? What does it say there? That we would be holy and blameless before him. Here we see the end. 
What is the ultimate purpose? Why were we chosen before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Christ? We were chosen so that one day we will stand before Jesus Christ holy and blameless. And we could add to that as the bride of Christ. And, and we see this also in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. That beautiful picture of the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. That he might present to himself the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, the called out ones, would be holy and blameless. One day we will stand before Jesus Christ, presented by the Father. The Father gives away the bride and gives the bride to Christ, the bride of Christ, holy and blameless without blemish. Even so, come Lord Jesus. This is the ultimate purpose. This is the purpose for which we are chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen so that we might be presented as the bride of Christ to Christ, holy and blameless. Now, this kind of hits on a principle that's helpful to me in understanding predestination. We'll look much more at predestination next Sunday. But one thing that really helps in understanding this whole idea of predestination is predestination has to do with the end. Predestination is not the beginning. Election is the beginning. Yes, we were predestined, we will see that, but it has to do with the purpose at the end. And so predestination is not foundational, as so many people suppose. We've had all those debates, arguments, millions of books written, at least billions of words, if not millions of books, written, you know, what is predestination, and are you this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian, and it, it all comes down to where you start, and much of the confusion, much of the debate has to do with starting in the wrong place. If you start with predestination, you're going to get everything else wrong. Because election has to do with God's purposes at the beginning, it's foundational, Predestination has to do with the ultimate end. How do I knew that? know that? Back to Romans chapter 8 again. <clears throat> Keep flipping back and forth this morning. Romans chapter 8, the 29th verse. Having laid the foundation of election, we go to the end of God's ultimate purpose. The 29th verse of Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Here we see the end. To become conformed to the image of his son. We are predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now the word translated predestined means to mark out ahead of time. To set boundaries. In fact, it really is a surveying term. That's the way it was used in ancient Greek. The surveyor goes out to the property. He marks out the corners of the property he marks out the boundaries. That's what the word means, to set the boundaries. And the property owner, within those boundaries, can do pretty much whatever he wants with whatever is in those boundaries until they come to us at the zoning commission and we tell them different. But at least in those days, there was, there was no zoning commission, no, no rules about it. That was your property. You can do whatever you want with it. And so in predestination, 
God marked out beforehand, determined the boundaries, and then determined that everyone within those boundaries called the elect, everyone within those boundaries will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Everyone within those boundaries will stand before Jesus Christ, holy and blameless as the bride of Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 1, 4 declared that we who are marked out ahead of time would be presented to Christ holy and blameless. Go back to Ephesians chapter, or Ephesians chapter 1, 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the, the next verse. Verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, what? He predestined us, there it is again, marked out ahead of time to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. In other words, not only to be conformed to the image of Christ, but that we will be adopted by the Father. And then notice the words, according to the kind intention of his will, not our will. There it is again, the kind of intention of God's will. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who chose us before the foundation of the world. God is the one who adopted us into the family of God. In adoption, who chooses? Do the kids choose? Not normally. You know, there might already be some kind of relationship where there's an instance where the child goes to somebody and says, would you please adopt me? But that's not the way it, it usually works. The, the parents choose those whom will be adopted. The father chose now, we're going to see much more predestination next Sunday, but for now we come to the means, the means, the way God fulfills his purpose. This is how God works his plan. This is how God works his plan for us. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I want us to see how God gets us on board with the plan. I want us to see God's means of fulfilling the plan in us. This is how God works his plan. He calls us, we are called, we are called according to his purpose. In order to do that, we go over to Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at the first verse. 22nd chapter of Matthew, verse 1. And in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, beginning at the first verse, we find the parable of the wedding feast. Now, obviously, we don't have time to to unpack everything that's here and, and take it as a parable and, and study it and, and see what all is here. But I think we'll get enough of it so when we get down to verse 14, we'll understand what is being said. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he went out, or he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said 
to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at this point you're thinking, it's kind of like I wish I hadn't watched that scary episode of Stargate Atlantis last night right before I went to bed. <laughs> because, boy, what a horrible place to begin and not understanding that, you know, totally and those kind of things. But notice verse 14 because this is what we want to hit on. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, kletos, kletos, but few are chosen, eklektos, related word, means many are, or few are elected. Many are called, but few are elected. Jesus' parable tells us about a call here, a call for people to come to the Lord. And here the term called has to do with an external invitation, a call that goes out, a general call. As servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yes, servants who are mistreated like they were in the the parable, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we go out and invite people to come to Christ. We're commanded to do that, to be his witnesses, to proclaim the gospel. And likewise, many people are under the hearing of the gospel. Many people are given an invitation to come, but only a few are chosen, elected. A lot of people hear the external external call, but few are chosen to the internal call. Remember that Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are few who find it. There are few who chosen. There are few who respond to the external call of the gospel to come to Christ, and so few are chosen. Now, the call in the parable here in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, is an external call. It's a general call that goes out to everybody. And we are commanded in Scripture, as servants of God, to take that call to everybody, right? But when you move from the gospel record into the epistle, such as Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to the Romans, and you see that word called, it's never again used in the epistle to refer to that external call, that general call, that broad call that goes out, to the general external call that goes out to all peoples, now in the epistles it always applies to the internal call. And you wonder what the difference is? The external call is just somebody sitting under the hearing of the gospel, hearing an invitation to come Christ. The internal call is God through his Holy Spirit moving that heart choosing that person, 
turning that heart around and redeeming them. And even though it's a proper use in, in Matthew and the parable for that external call, and it's a proper use of that term, when you get to the epistles, when you get to Ephesians and Romans and the other letters, it has to do with what Ephesians or what theologians call the effective or effectual call of God. The ones whom God calls, he redeems. And in case you wonder about that, look at Romans chapter 8 again. Maybe you kept your finger in Romans 8. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, that is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, he also called. And those whom he called, he also, what? Justified. Justified. Now we're not dealing with an external outward call. We're dealing with the heart. That God comes into the heart of a person with that internal call who responds to God in faith. And by faith, we are justified. We're talking about the chosen, the predestined, the elect. Because then it says, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. In a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at what we call the unbroken chain. God does not elect, choose anybody. God does not predestine anybody. God does not call anybody in which he will not take that same body and stand them before Christ, holy and blameless before him. He doesn't lose a one. And so in the epistles, we call this the effectual call. The effect being that when God calls you, when God chooses you, you will be justified, you will be glorified, and you will become conformed to the image of his Son. Go over to Romans chapter 9, verse 11. And here Paul is talking about God choosing Jacob over Esau. He chose Jacob instead of Esau, verse 11 of chapter 9. For though the twins, that is Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and have not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, would remain, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Here again, we see the effectual call of God, his divine purpose, his choosing, not because of any external works, good deeds, or anything else. We studied Jacob in our Sunday school class, and we weren't real sure whether Esau was not the better man. <laughs> Jacob was the supplanter. He was devious. And, and it really took a work of God to, to, to change him. So God didn't choose Jacob because of anything, good or bad, that Jacob had done. He, he chose him according to his purpose and his choice stands. Now over in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, is one of my favorite verses. Favorite promises in, in God's word. Romans eleven twenty nine, And it just simply says, For the gifts, the charismata, literally, the spiritual gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Irrevocable. And in the same way that God calls us, and he never uncalls us, when God gives us spiritual gifts, he never takes those away. They're irrevocable. 
When you have been called of God, whether it's calling to salvation and redemption and glorification, or you've been called of God to serve in a certain way because of your spiritual gifts, it says right there, they're irrevocable. God will never, never take it back. And remember this and don't forget this. If you get anything out of this today, don't forget this. The reason you love God is because what? He first loved you. And the reason you have come to him is what? He first chose you. And the reason you responded to God is because he turned your heart around. And so that salvation is initiated by God. I like the way that Martin Lloyd, Lord, Martin Lloyd Jones said it. He said, God interferes with our life. God interferes with our life. And you think about this, God interferes with our lives rather significantly. This is a divine act that initiates salvation and not only initiates it, but he brings it all the way to completion. All the way from coordination, predestination, calling, justification to glorification. I can hardly wait till we get to what it means to be glorified in Romans chapter 8.30. We are saved because he called us. And why is this important? You were called before the world began in God's mind and in God's plan. You and I are called before, from eternity past. And the point is this. If in eternity past God called us and he called us then, he called us that he might glorify us in eternity future. Right? Right. And so there can't be any loss. And we're right back to Romans 8, 28. To where, this is a whole sermon, 30 minutes long now. We're back to Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Why? Because they are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for our good because he's bringing it all together in his plan. In verse 29, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We've been called to be glorified. And I want to read just a few more verses in Romans chapter 8 because this will get us thinking for, for next Sunday. Verse 31 of the 8th chapter. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to all of this? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now notice verse 33. Who will bring a charge against? Who? His elect. Who's going to bring a charge against? His elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We've seen the work of the Holy Spirit all this. Now we see the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. He's in heaven making sure this is all going to happen, bringing us to him. It's a tremendous promise that no one, no thing can bring a charge against God's elect. No one can condemn God's elect. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we conclude with the question this morning is, how do you know you are called according to God's purpose? To put it another way, 
How do you know that you are one of God's chosen? How do you know that you were chosen before the foundation of the world? Do you have to worry about it and fret about it and be concerned that maybe God didn't choose me for salvation, that maybe I'm destined for wrath? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? And the answer, after maybe the way I've confused you today, is exceedingly simple. The answer is believe. Simply believe. Nowhere in the Bible does it instruct us to be concerned about our status, whether we're elect or non-elect. Rather, God calls us to believe. He calls us to receive Jesus Christ as Savior by grace through faith. If a person truly trusts in Jesus alone for salvation, that person is one of the elect. Now, there is a debate on whether belief secures election or election causes belief, but that's another debate for another time. What is sure, and you can depend upon this, on you, this you can place your eternal security, your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ is the evidence of your election. If you hadn't been chosen by God, you wouldn't believe. And we could go round and round with how that works. But no one can receive Jesus Christ as Savior unless God draws him or her. And God calls and draws those whom he has elected. Therefore, saving faith is not possible without divine election. Therefore, saving faith is evidence of being chosen. The idea of a person wanting to be saved and not being able to be saved Due to not being one of the elect, is that's, that whole thing's absolutely foreign to God's word. It's just not there. According to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, no one seeks after God's plan of salvation on his own accord. According to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, those without Christ are blind to their need for salvation. This only changes when God draws a person to himself. It is God who opens our minds and enlightens our or opens our eyes and enlightens our minds for our need for Christ as a Savior. A person can't repent unless God grants repentance. Therefore, if you understand God's plan of salvation, you recognize your need for it and feel compelled to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, then believe. You are saved. And if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, trusting Him alone, for your salvation, believing that his sacrifice is the full payment for your sins, then praise God, you are one of the elect. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for your Holy Spirit, and I pray as we've studied these these complex and, and difficult truths from your words this morning, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who is not only working in my life as, as the one who preaches, Father, and I thank you for that. I just pray that you will take what my human weakness and, and vocal frailties might complicate even more, Father, but we know that your Holy Spirit is at work in everyone who hears your word preached and taught, Lord all of us who are here today. Father, and I thank you that your Holy Spirit brings these truths to us and, and not only is helping us understand and teaching us all things, but is also working on our hearts and in our lives, Lord, giving us that godly desire for you. 
To know you in salvation through Jesus Christ. To know you as a heavenly father who loves and cares for us and is going to bring all these things to completion. Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who intercedes for us in heaven and the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us, Father, and continues to work to bring all these things to completion, Lord. Father, I just thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning who is sensing and hearing your call, and you are working, changing the heart, Lord, that that one will respond to in saving faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray it in his name. Amen.